Welcome to episode two of the Man Made Kaiju Cast, and I am your host, Rob138. And I'm going to have to be honest, I may have bitten off a little bit more than I can chew. Um, I say that because while I have always been a Godzilla and monster movie fan in general, um, and by extension, a Tokusatsu fan as a whole. I said that way too many times in the first episode. Please go back, make a drinking game out of it, but drink responsibly. Um, <laughs> I never really, I guess I never really knew Tokusatsu as the genre that it is. Um, I mean, I vividly recall being a child and having like a rubber Ultraman figure. Um, you know, I definitely knew what the Power Rangers were. I knew what Master Rider was. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely remember, you know, watching Ultraman as a kid with, uh, like, some really bad American dubbing on it. Some English dubbing. Um, but yeah, I never knew, like, tokusatsu as a genre, you know. Um, I just thought it was just, you know, I don't even know what I thought. I guess I was just always aware of tokusatsu without actually being aware of tokusatsu. And with that said, I'm just, like I said in the last episode, just trying to take all this in. And I'm really just now starting to really get into it. Um, I, uh, I've gone back to revisit Ultraman. Um, I've been watching it on Tubi uh, since um, Shell Factory has it up there. Um, watching it, obviously, with the... Um, the subtitles rather than the dubs. I mean, the dubs aren't on TV anyway. And I mean, I love Ultraman. I've always loved Ultraman. Um, so I decided I needed to actually uh, go purchase Ultraman. So I went out and uh, for you YouTube viewers, holding up the Blu-ray collection of Ultraman. Um, yeah, so I've been watching that. Started watching uh, Super Sentai with Beth. Um, Beth being the absolute badass that is designed Tokagi for the kaiju cast here and super sentai is what <laughs> it is it's nuts <laughs> it's it's absolutely nuts and i love it i love it so much um i i love power rangers still gonna be wrong but i mean this just just better i would say um so yeah that's that's what i've been that's what i've been doing with that and really just kind of jumping into it been trying to find some common rider that i want to it's just everything seems so overwhelming with all of this you know there's so much to absorb um so i've been watching like common rider kugo um which is pretty cool pretty cool the theme song is a total banger uh so yeah um beyond that i uh finally tracked down a copy of godzilla and mothra and godzilla versus king Ghidorah, the heisei era uh Got a triple feature DVD with Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah Giant Monsters Attack, which I already have on Blu-ray, but the uh, formats in the first two films are impossible to find on Blu-ray. They're out of print, and they're super expensive. So, yeah. So let's get into some uh, some tokusatsu kaiju goodness here. Uh, let's start with some news, man. Uh, Shin Ultraman released on May 13th, and it is... Absolutely killing it in the Japanese box office with a 3D opening of $7.7 .7 million. 
This makes Shin Ultraman Japan's biggest May opening in 11 freaking years. Uh, it's actually the biggest opening for any Ultraman movie ever, and the third biggest opening for any kaiju film in the last 10 years. So that's awesome. I'm super stoked to see Shin Ultraman. If it's anything like Shin Godzilla, one, it's going to rule, and two, it's going to be a year before I can see it, unfortunately. Um, speaking of Ultraman, this will probably be over by the time this podcast drops, but uh, Ultraman Connection is hosting a live watch party of Ultraman Ultra Galaxy Fight, The Destined Crossroad for all members on May 26th. Uh, I'm going to check it out. Um, it's supposed to start at 9 p.m. Eastern, but I think there's a, a panel and another movie at 6 p.m. Eastern. Again, not that it's really going to matter at all because this podcast will have aired by the time that airs. So, yeah. Um, Monsterverse News. Legendary Entertainment has announced that Matt Shackman, I think I'm saying that correctly, best known for his work on Marvel Studios' WandaVision, has officially come on board to direct the first two episodes of Apple Plus's Monsterverse project. Uh, he will also executive produce. I think he was the ex- executive producer on Game of Thrones as well, or one of them. I know he, I know he worked on Game of Thrones in some capacity. Uh, that said, I'm not a huge Marvel Studios fan. Like, not a Marvel Studios guy. Um, sure, early on, you know, Iron Man was great, Cap was great, but all those movies have become kind of samey, they're really kind of hit or miss with me, um, WandaVision was alright, so, you know, maybe, we'll see. So that brings us to the topic for the day, the return of Godzilla, Godzilla 1984. Directed by Koji Hashimoto with special effects by Teriyoshi Nakano, The Return of Godzilla was the last Godzilla film to be produced during the Showa era. It would also somehow become the first Godzilla film of the Heisei era, and it's actually the 16th film in the franchise. It is a direct sequel to the 1954 film Gojira, and also kind of serves as a quasi-reboot. Uh, the movie sold 3.2 million tickets in Japan and grossed a total of about $14 million on an estimated budget of $6.2 million. Uh, by today's standards, that's about $37 million. Uh, the return of Godzilla was generally well-received by fans and critics alike, and in 1985, it won the Japan Academy Award for Special Effects. Uh, the movie ignores the entirety of the Showa-era films and takes Godzilla back to its darker tones and its anti-nuclear themes like the original, and it really reintroduces Godzilla as a force of nature uh, rather than being portrayed as the on-again, off-again friend of Earth and hero that he was being portrayed as in the Showa-era films. So after the terror of Mechagodzilla failed at the box office, Toho wanted to reinvigorate the franchise. The first attempt was the announcement of a color remake of the original Gojira entitled The Rebirth of Godzilla in 1977. The project was eventually shelved, uh, only to have Toho and UPA Studios announce a joint venture called Godzilla vs. the Devil one year later. Um, I don't know what that would have wound up being, but goddamn if I'm not interested. UPA producer Henry Saberstein also proposed Godzilla vs. Gargantua. Neither project saw the light of day. It wasn't until Godzilla's creator, Tomoyuki Tanaka, took charge in 1979, Gojira's 25th anniversary, 
taking inspiration from films like 1979's King Kong, The Thing, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, as well as the real-life accident on Three Mile Island, Tanaka intended to return Godzilla to his roots. Quote, the character change was responsible for his decline. It was a mistake. End quote. Tomoyuki Tanaka said in a 1985 issue of People magazine. A draft entitled The Resurrection of Godzilla was submitted in 1980, which saw Godzilla taking on a shape-shifting monster named Bakan at an illegal nuclear site. This was canceled due to budget concerns. Following this, Steve Miner, director of Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3, and he would go on to direct House and Halloween H2O, had proposed a Godzilla film at his own expense. Though Toho approved and Fred Decker was hired to write screenplay, the project was rejected by major American studios, citing Miner's insistence on costly stop-motion animation and shooting the film in 3D. While this was going on, at the behest of Japanese Godzilla fans, Tanaka chose to helm a Japanese Godzilla film for what would be described as, quote, strictly domestic consumption and was set to be released alongside Miner's proposed Godzilla project. Tanaka insisted on making a direct sequel, and hired Shuuchi Nagahara to pen the screenplay, which would combine elements of Miner's Godzilla project as well as the aforementioned resurrection of Godzilla. Goji Hashimoto, who was no stranger to kaiju films, he holds assistant director credits on 1962's King Kong vs. Godzilla, 1964's Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and 1965's Frankenstein vs. Baragon, was hired to direct after Ishiro Honda declined. Honda cited scheduling conflicts as he was assisting Akira Kurosawa with Kagamusha at the time and felt the franchise should have been laid to rest after Eiji Tsuburaya's death in 1970. The original Gojira composer Akira Ifakube was offered the job to score the new project, but respectfully declined citing his teaching priorities at the Tokyo College of Music. Teriyoshi Nakano, who was no stranger to Godzilla, was a appointed special effects director. His prior Godzilla contributions included effects on 1971's Godzilla vs. Sador, 1972's Godzilla vs. Gigan, 1973's Godzilla vs. Megalon, 1974's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla and the aforementioned Terror of Mechagodzilla in 1975. He also had assistant special effects director credits for 1962's King Kong vs. Godzilla, 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla, 1964's Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, 1965's Frankenstein vs. Baragon, 1966's War of the Gargantuas, and 1968's Destroy All Monsters, as well as 1969's All Monsters Attack. Guy's basically kaiju royalty. This, however, would be his final contribution to the franchise. He once stated that this was his second favorite Godzilla film that he directed effects for. Tanaka wanted to increase Godzilla's in-canon height from 160 feet to 260 feet so that he wouldn't seem small in comparison to the contemporary skyline of Tokyo. Uh, this meant that the miniatures had to be built at 140th scale, which served to cause an increase in budget. I believe the miniatures uh, were 125th scale on the original Gojira, so they were, they were a bit bigger. The Godzilla suit design would incorporate features not seen since Godzilla raids again, such as the ever-controversial Godzilla ears, as well as Godzilla's four toes. 
Though the Godzilla suit was cast and built for stuntman Hiroshi Yamawaki, he would suddenly decline the role, and it would go to former Hidora and Gigan actor Kenpachira Satsuma. Satsuma would suffer many injuries playing the role, and much like prior Godzilla suit actors, had lost a lot of weight by the end of the production. In addition to the suit mason, Toho would have a 16-foot-tall animatronic Godzilla built, affectionately referred to as Saibot, to be used in close-up shots and also permitted uh, more animalistic facial movements. Though, in my opinion, the eyes do kind of look, like, weird and kind of funky. Um, when you're looking at it head-on, like, one eye goes one way, one eye goes the other way, and sometimes they're cross-eyed, it's just... It's not threatening, I'll say that much. In addition to our, our buddy the Cybot, there would be a 15-foot Godzilla foot made to be used for crushing pavement and vehicles. This would be operated by a crane. この巨大な影はゴジラだ。動物にして動物にやらせる。あんな生物はこれまでの地球の歴史に存在しなかった。ゴジラが東京湾の伊豆へ蚊に上陸するのは必至ともあります。陸海空 アメリカとソ連にゴジラが現れたら首都ワシントンやモスクワでためらわずに核兵器を使える勇気がありますかウェルカムゴジラか we open on a shot of lava spewing from a volcano with a nice piece of ominous music from Rajiro Koroku as the opening credits roll. 
Uh, we cut to a, a Japanese fishing barge off the shores of Daikoku and are told it's three months after the eruption. This is a pretty cool nod back to the original Gojira. The island itself begins to shake and erupt, and a giant monster appears in all of the chaos. We can't quite see what the monster is, but when we hear the roar, I think we all know. Their ship is rocked in the current, and all the passengers become incapacitated. We meet Maki, who is sailing in the area a few days later. He finds the ship intact. He decides to board and finds the crew dead and decomposed. I really enjoyed the gore effects here. Not what you would get in a more graphic horror movie, but they did kind of remind me of the early 60s, 70s, Eurosploitation, um, Hammer kind of um, effects. Um, I do also think that the initial reveal, the filmmakers should have just not gone back for the second shot. I think the effect was better served to give us the flash of the corpse and then let it your brain kind of... Uh, simmer on it rather than give us a clear shot because it actually I feel like the second shot was a disservice to the effect it looked like your brain was able to connect that it looked very fake whereas the first shot was kind of jarring um, so there's a lot of just out of frame shots of decomposed bodies Maki comes to an open locker with one of our other main characters in it uh, Hiroshi Akamura who has a pretty spiffy velcro wallet i had one of those before it was hot pink and it had the ninja turtles on it um i can't speak for what akamura's had on it though i can speak to what's in it however um he finds akamura's id and a photograph of akamura with a young lady just then maki is attacked by a sea lice i believe there's a brief struggle but akamura comes to and he saves maki they make it to the deck of the ship and are saved by the Japanese Coast Guard. Akamura is in shock and says it was a monster. From there we head to Toto Times, where Maki is trying to convince people of his giant monster story. But it is a no-go. This is where we establish Maki is in fact a reporter. We then cut to the hospital where Akamura is admitted and he is shown pictures of the 1954 Gojira by Professor Hayashida. And then he realizes the monster was Godzilla. So my question here is, spoilers, at the end of the 1954 Godzilla movie, um, Godzilla dies. He's just a giant pile of bones. Actually, I think, I think bones are gone too. Anyway, he's pretty done. Godzilla's done. Um, the implication here is that this is the same Godzilla. Like, this is, this is Godzilla. They don't say it's a different Godzilla. They just say it's Godzilla. So... You know, how did he survive? Never explained. Just kind of irritates me. Um, it is deduced that the sea lice was of such a large size because it fed on Godzilla, and the radiation from Godzilla made it grow. We are also told that the eruption at Daikoku woke Godzilla up. We now meet the Prime Minister, who is informed of Godzilla, and he has this really cool line about how he was hoping to finish his term without incident. I love that the implication here is that this is just like an incident. <laughs> like it's a little bump in the road on his way out of uh, on his way out of office. Um, the prime minister initiates a gag order on the Godzilla news. Back at Toto Times, I think that's how you say it. Is it Toto or Toto? Yeah, I, I mean, what else would it be? 
Maki is told that the Godzilla story is dropped and the official story for Akamura and the ship is that both are missing. Uh, Maki, however, is given permission to reach out to Professor Hayashida. See, I don't understand this here. If the story's dead and there's a gag order and he's not allowed to write the story, why is he given access to the professor? I digress. So Maki goes to meet the professor. And uh, <laughs> I think this every time I see this scene. What the hell is going on with the pipes on the wall there? Like, they run from the floor to the ceiling, right? But they don't run straight up. They do, like, all this weird, like, Tetris... MC Escher on acid shit, and it just, like, who designed this? It is so friggin' bizarre. Anyway, here we find out a couple of things. We learn that the professor's parents were lost in the original 1954 Godzilla attack. Um, the professor is asked if he hates Godzilla and wants revenge. He says he used to hate Godzilla. Um, that's a cool parallel for later. Hayashida describes Godzilla as a living invincible nuclear weapon. Um, this is also the scene. <laughs> I mentioned this in the Man-Made Monster cast uh, last week. This is also the scene where Hayashida hands Maki the children's dinosaur book, um, which I guess is just scientific stuff. Children's books. Let's study dinosaurs in a professional setting with a Fisher-Price book. It probably wasn't Fisher-Price. Anyway, we also meet Nako, the professor's assistant. And I think I'm pronouncing her name right. I think it's Nako. It's either Nako or Nako. Um, I want to say it's Nako, so I'm just going to go with Nako. For the record, I, I watched the, um, the Japanese version with the English subtitles. So it was hard to catch some of the pronunciations. Uh, I'm trying to learn some Japanese, but obviously not my native language. Um, anyway, so she is the quote-unquote quasi-love interest, I think, and is also Akamura's sister. Maki recalls her from the picture in Akamura's wallet. Uh, she was not told that her brother is alive by the government's orders. Outside, Maki makes small talk with her, and he says that he's a friend of Akamura. He then asks if she has any family. Yes. Yes, she does, Maki. She does. She has a brother, you idiot. You just claim to be his friend. Good lord. He then tells her about Godzilla and that her brother's alive, and then he tells her her brother's location. The weird thing here is she doesn't really react at all to the news of Godzilla. Like, kind of feel like that would be a bigger deal, but it is not. We cut to the hospital where Anako forces her way into the room with her brother. They embrace. Maki and his photographer also force their way in and are taking pictures. Uh, Nako basically shoots him a look of death because this is a real scummy move. Uh, Maki says it won't go into the story yet. Nako really looks like she's been taken advantage of here because she was. We cut to a Soviet submarine which gets utterly destroyed by Godzilla, the Soviets blame the Americans. The inclusion of the Soviet Russia and the U.S. plays into the tensions of the Cold War, and it's totally fitting with the initial story of Godzilla as a cautionary tale with regards to nuclear weapons, so I'm here for it. I think it was a smart move. With that said, an entire crisis ensues that threatens to escalate 
nuclear tensions between the U.S. and the Soviets. However, Japan intervenes and calls a press conference. They reveal the return of Godzilla. That's the that's the title of the movie. That's 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 the title of yeah. Yeah, the anyway. A photo is shown of Godzilla that a Japanese submarine took. It's more of a silhouette or like a radar. Um, you can basically see his outline. And they announced that Akamura survived. Akamura talks about his rage and hatred towards Godzilla, and he can't forgive it, uh, Godzilla, for what it's done. This is the uh, the cool parallel here, back to the professor. You know, Akamura, young man, talking about his rage and his hatred, and he won't be able to forgive him, whereas the professor is older, and he used to feel that way, and that has changed for him, realizing the nature of the beast, and that man actually created this problem. On the heels of this announcement, the Japanese leaders meet at the Japanese Godzilla Emergency Countermeasure yeah, Emergency Countermeasures Headquarters. Freaking hell! Try saying that five times fast. Uh, they meet to discuss Japan's defense, and they reveal the Super X. Uh, the Super X is a new weapon specifically designed that will defend against Godzilla using cadmium rounds. The military is then put on high alert. The Super X is described basically as a flying fortress. You get some exposition from the professor about Godzilla's eating habits. Uh, he says that Godzilla will come to Tokyo eventually because that's where the food is. There's a montage of the country mobilizing their forces to meet Godzilla. And here's where all hell starts to break loose. We get this really cool point of view shot like high in the air. And we hear these thundering footsteps. I thought this was really awesome as to how you introduce Godzilla into the movie. So for these kaiju movies, typically you get the, the low angle shots that shoot upwards to present the size of the kaiju. And in this instance, it's literally the point of view of the kaiju looking down. And I think that's really unique. And I don't really recall seeing it in very many other kaiju movies. I mean, if I'm wrong, please, you know, send me a tweet or hit me on Instagram or something. But, uh, I, th I thought that was really unique. I really enjoyed it. Um, the ground cracks, and there is a power plant worker who basically craps his pants, and then we get the low-angle money shot of Godzilla. It pans up, and it lets out this huge roar, and this roar is probably one of, if not my favorite, Godzilla roars. The reason being is it's, I feel like it's so much more visceral from what we saw in the Showa era. Like, it's, it's a lot more guttural and deep. In the end of it, there's a lot more low end in the roar. I just absolutely love this this version of Godzilla's roar. Um, that being said, Jesus Christ, did the eyes piss me off? <sighs> it's just like anybody ever seen like the wrestler Shawn Michaels? Like now, how he's got like one eye it goes this way and one eye it goes this way. Like that's what Godzilla's doing here. It's uh, it's very frustrating. <laughs> Um, we get some really great stuff here with the Cybot. Um, there's a shot of Godzilla walking into power lines, which I think is a nod to 1954's Gojira. I, I might have to go back and look. I haven't watched Gojira in a while. Or I could be thinking of that Ultraman episode with the, uh, the Invisible Monster that I just watched last night. But I'm pretty sure it's a nod to 54's Gojira. There's a lot of cool miniature stuff here. I really dig the Godzilla design. Uh, all of this is intercut with the defense force watching Godzilla attacking on monitors in their base. And I, I, I gotta say, it's pretty funny. 
when they go to the base and they're looking at the screens and they're literally just watching the scene that we just watched. Like, it's like Spaceballs where they're watching the movie. <laughs> so, uh, a little cheesy, a little campy. I dig it. I dig it a lot. Our three heroes show up to watch Godzilla and document what's happening. Godzilla feeds the power plant until it's dry and then he leaves. There's a really cool instance that actually is a plot device here, but there's a cool instance of these birds flying away in the direction that Godzilla's walking. They're superimposed, obviously, but it's cool because it gives Godzilla a sense of girth and size. So yeah, it's it's, it's just really cool that, you know, the when they were superimposing, it looks really good, it's believable. Um, we, we cut back to our heroes, and after debating with Akamura and Maki, Hayashida reveals that he believes Godzilla followed those birds instinctively by some kind of honing signal. Yep. You know what? The hell with it. I'll take it. I'm here for it. Doesn't make any sense to me, but yeah, let's, let's go with that. Nako also gives Maki the cold shoulder here, uh, the implication being that she knows that he used her for a story. This is a plot thread that I feel like gets lost. Um, I'll talk more about it at the end here. Hayashida tells Akamura to meet his geologist friend, Minami, at Mount Mihara. There was a montage of the two doing tests at Mount Mihara. So something about Mount Mihara here. A geophysicist named Hitoshi Takuchi served as a consultant on this film. He recommended a couple of locations for Godzilla to be defeated before ultimately deciding on Mount Mihara. The staff had actually considered staging the finale at Mount Fuji. Mount Mihara also has a cultural significance as the island that it's on had been designated for banishing exiles in previous uh, centuries in Japan's history. In the early 1900s, Mihara also grew a reputation for suicide, unfortunately, with more than 2,000 deaths between the years of 1931 and 1937. To curb the suicides, uh, Japanese authorities erected a fence around the volcano's crater and assigned guards to patrol it. We head back to Tokyo, where the gang is doing some research. Akamura informs the professor as to what they have discovered. The professor takes the information to the cabinet and tells them that he thinks he can lure Godzilla to Mount Mihara and cause the volcano to erupt. And it's funny, I never thought this before, and it just popped in my head while I was watching this. I wonder if the, the sonar sound lore that um, the professor is designing here actually inspired the orca in Legendary Pictures of Godzilla, King of Monsters. I mean, I don't think it would be a coincidence. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess I'll have to dig into that and try to find out. Uh, from here, the Prime Minister meets with the U.S. and the Soviets. The U.S. and the Soviets want to use their nuclear weapons on Godzilla, and they ask what Japan is willing to do. I really like, I actually got the stretch distracted here. I really like the shot composition here. It's like a three-quarter shot behind the Prime Minister facing each of the representatives in either direction. But everything's in focus. So, because of the depth of field, how close it is to the Prime Minister's face on either side, like, he should be out of focus. Everything's in this weird focus, and it's just, it's a cool optical uh, effect. I, I dug it a lot. It's really cool. We established that the Soviets have a response ship in Tokyo, in Tokyo Bay. The Prime Minister meets with his cabinet, 
And they speculate that this is a way for the U.S. and the Soviets to test their nukes. That's all egoism or egotism. Um, this whole scene's really confusing when you're watching this without uh, having a full comprehension of the Japanese language, if you have to focus on the subtitles, because there's two scenes of the Prime Minister interspliced with each other, one where he's talking to the representatives and one where he's talking to his cabinet, and it's really, really, really easy to get lost in the dialogue and become not really sure who's actually talking to you at the time. So, we're back again with the U.S. and the Soviets, and the Prime Minister tells them that nuclear weapons will not be used. There's a nice little line here where the U.S. representative says, this is no time to be discussing principles. And that completely checks out for a government official, because when is it ever time to discuss principles with a government official? The Prime Minister says that even if Godzilla reaches the mainland, nuclear weapons will not be used. We then get shots of the American Soviet nuclear space weapons. <laughs> the, uh, the Prime Minister is questioned by his cabinet about the meeting, and the Prime Minister leans back and lights a cigarette. Uh, he tells them, uh, not so many words, he basically flipped it around on the U.S. and the Soviets and posed the question of if a nuclear weapon was launched at Washington or Moscow, how would they feel? He says they saw his point. So we cut to the Soviet ship in Tokyo Bay, where a captain is going in to shut down the nuclear space weapon. There's also, <laughs> there's also an open bottle of vodka in the room. That's, a, that's definitely a thing that you want to have at a nuke launching station. Vodka. You definitely want to get drunk while you're manning the controls for a nuclear warhead. Uh, Godzilla is seen approaching Tokyo Bay. We get a montage of the defense forces, evacuations, trains, planes, people running, cats and dogs, living together. The defense force sets up to intercept Godzilla. And they fail in spectacular fashion. Uh, the scene where the tanks and the artillery are all lined up at the bay, uh, like right at the edge there, and Godzilla standing in the shot in front of them is, this is just peak kaiju filmmaking, in my opinion. Godzilla uses his atomic breath to absolutely and totally wreck goddamn everything. And it's masterfully done. Um, big shout out to the stuntman who was on fire running through the camera shot. That just added to the chaos of this. Um, the aftermath shot is just utter perfection. Godzilla just looks at his handiwork and he lets out that awesome signature roar. The battle unfortunately causes damage to the Soviet ship and starts the countdown for the nuclear missile. Our, our friendly captain dies while trying to stop it. Godzilla proceeds to basically wreck everything, including this awesome interaction with a monorail where he just kind of picks it up, and we get these shots from inside the monorail with the passengers on it all screaming and falling down, and they, they look out the window, and Godzilla is superimposed to where you can see his face looking in. And there's, like, this one strange bird of a passenger who's, like, smiling and, like, happy to see Godzilla. Um, so that, that's, that's really cool, that whole scene. And then he just kind of, like, drops it. Doesn't even care. I'm sure just all the people died. Uh... <laughs> 
So, another factoid here. During the Rampage, Godzilla makes his way through some of the same locations as the original 1954 film, such as the scene in which Godzilla smashes, and I'm probably going to screw this up, smashes into the Yorakucho Mulian building after his foot crashes through concrete. 30 years earlier, this had been the old Nichigeki Theater that Godzilla destroyed in the original. The staff had even designed it so that the floor Godzilla tears into was actually the location of the newly created Toho Cinema's Nichigeki. Godzilla also makes his way across the Tokyo Expressway, which had been a river with a bridge that Godzilla walked over in the original film. Uh, we find out Godzilla's headed towards Shinjuku. Here we meet another very strange character. Um, it's like a looter, I think. Comes off as a looter. He's just... He's a looter. He's having drinks while all this, this shit's going on. He's just stealing stuff. And uh, the cool thing about him is he just incessantly talks shit to Godzilla. <laughs> when he comes up on him, he calls Godzilla an out-of-towner and tells him to stop walking around like he owns the place. Fantastic. Uh, we cut back to our heroes. Godzilla is right outside their window. Maki has the sonar um, honing gun aimed at him, to get, and they get his attention. They then unhook some equipment, they say it worked, and they head up to the roof. Godzilla is then met with laser-armed trucks, and he gets hit with a big old laser. His tail whips around into the building that our hero's in, which causes an emergency lockdown. They're not getting to the roof anytime soon. Back out to the streets, there are more lasers fired at Godzilla, and the Super X finally shows up. The Super X fires some flares, which Godzilla roars at, only to have the Super X launch the cadmium rounds into his mouth. My question with this is, what was the plan B? What if Godzilla didn't care at all about those flares, and just punched the Super X out of the sky? Valid question, right? Like, what, what does he care about the flares for? And what if he looked and didn't open his mouth? What if he shot me in the face? That's a risk we were willing to take. Um, anyway, the, the uh, cadmium causes our buddy Goji to collapse like I used to do after an all-nighter straight through a building. Also, I want to point out here uh, something of note that I feel like gets uh, lost in this movie a lot. Appreciate the animatronic chest heaving from Godzilla. Um, the breathing. It's cool. Uh, it gets lost sometimes with all the other cool things happening in this movie, but I just wanted to point it out. So while this is going on, our team is trying to break through the locked doors. Maki even goes to get a crowbar. No avail. People begin to get closer to get a look at the fallen Godzilla. They're being warned by the authorities to move back, but they don't move. Kind of like today. Everyone has to stop and look at an accident. Everyone has to have their phones out. Everybody has to be on social media. Have people always been this dumb? It's a rhetorical question. The countdown for the Soviet nuke finishes and the missile launches. Akamura shows up in a helicopter to save his friends with uh, some weird, like, glass shattering device. It's the most absurd rescue attempt I've ever seen, and they can only do them, like, one at a time. It's, it's very strange. Uh, he's only able to get the professor out before his sister makes him go as well, and then he almost plunges to his death. And he and the professor head off to Mount Mihara because the chopper cannot stay there any longer. This leaves Maki and Nako on their own. The U.S. launch a counterstrike to intercept the Soviet missile. 
I really, really, really love, and this is, you know, I had thought this at this point with the, uh, the Counter-Strike and the accidental launch, um, the parallel of the original Gojira uh, being a product of nuclear catastrophe and this Godzilla being the potential cause of one. Uh, this is a movie full of parallels. Some of them, unfortunately, don't pay off. However, the Counter-Strike is successful. But it turns the skies red, and then a lightning storm happens. Lightning hits Godzilla, and it revives him naturally. At this point, he has a pretty great cat-and-mouse fight with the Super X. Uh, it's back and forth. He hits the atomic breath of a couple buildings. Uh, he stumbles into one, I believe. It's pretty cool. It's re honestly, it's a really cool little chase, little cat-and-mouse that eventually sees Godzilla get completely and utterly, totally sick of the Super X's shit. Um, the Super X is forced to make a landing, and Godzilla promptly gives zero Fs about it and pushes an entire goddamn skyscraper directly on top of it. Goodbye, Super X. Got a nice shot of Godzilla. Not a care in the world. Doesn't care that he just did this. It's like he swatted a fly. While all this is going on, Maki and Nako are able to escape the building via a fire hose that our shit-talking looter friend helped with. They all split. Godzilla kind of chases them, but I don't think that's the intent that Godzilla's just doing stuff. We get this cool like scene of the looter running with Godzilla directly behind him. Awesome. We head over to Mount Mihara. Hayashida is able to get the homing device to work, and Godzilla hears it. He begins to swim back across Tokyo Bay and head to Mihara. There's a cool shot when Godzilla gets to Mihara of his head coming up above the mountainside. Once he's there, the professor further lures Godzilla closer to the edge of the crater, which collapses under his weight. Godzilla regains his footing, however, but it is far too late. Charges are set off that cause Mihara to erupt, and Godzilla plunges into the heart of the volcano amidst various explosions as Kuroko's haunting closing theme plays. That is the end of Godzilla 1984, The Return of Godzilla. So, what are my thoughts? I'll start with the good. I think that the premise is really great, and using the U.S.-Soviet tensions as a backdrop for the nuclear theme was incredibly intelligent. Um, I know that when they were going to make Godzilla 1985, um, which was the U.S. version of this, the U.S. was not super thrilled uh, about being shown as having the same morality as Soviet Russia, which is why they changed the U.S. version. Um, but I thought that seeing the conflict through more of a neutral kind of eye was pretty great. Japan was looking at the bigger picture, and I feel like the U.S. and Soviets were portrayed in this as still kind of having, you know, a whose dick is bigger contest, basically, and having their heads up their asses until Japan kind of pulled them out. I also really enjoyed the cinematography. There were a lot of really, really, really well-lit shots of Godzilla. Um, I specifically recall one where he's like bathed in red light. I can't remember the actual scene, but it was it was incredible. Um, I liked again the use of the point of view down instead of the from the ground looking up at a kaiju. We got the scope and size of the kaiju from its own point of view, and that was awesome. Um, yeah, a lot of these shots really made Godzilla seem ominous while also complimenting the fact that it's a suitmation. The guy's in a suit for the most part. 
Uh, the destruction scenes were fantastic, really, really showed how far those kind of effects had come for these types of movies. Again, I, I want to point out some cool camera angles, like like I mentioned with the, the Prime Minister, the three-quarter shot from the back where everything's in focus. Um, I really enjoyed a lot of the scenes in the HQ, specifically when, you know, they lost power for a bit, and the Prime Minister, who, the Prime Minister was awesome in this, by the way. Um, his facial expressions were great. It just looked like all hope was lost. The lighting, just everything about it was awesome. The bad. This, this unfortunately, is where we get into our parallels and how most of them fell flat. Um, I feel like our main characters fell flat. There were a lot of really interesting plot threads throughout the film that ultimately went nowhere, whether that was by design uh, or if it was just runtime. I mean, it's, a, it's not a long movie, but it's a long enough movie for a kaiju flick. Um, I don't know. I look at something like Maki and Nako's relationship. We go very quickly from Nako giving him the cold shoulder to her having no issues at all with him. Um, there's very little character development there and i feel like they set it up and there was just you know we're out of time we, we gotta just get to the thing get to the next point so that sucked in that sense um i would have liked to see more i also feel there was supposed to be more with the professor and akamura they had some similar themes in their characters but from opposing sides um i don't think that was an accident at all i think the characteristics were shown there just wasn't much of a payoff um you know, again, Akamura being a younger man with the rage and the pain, the anger, and the professor being older and wiser, having gone through that trauma and letting those feelings go because, you know, whether it be, you know, nature ultimately presides over man or the fact that man, you know, made their own weapon here, made their own problem. Uh, those issues aren't really addressed by the end of the movie when it comes to those two characters with, with such similar traits. Um, I also felt like Kuroko's score was hit or miss. For me, there weren't very memorable themes other than the opening and closing pieces, which bookended the film nicely, but ultimately, I'm a big score guy. There wasn't a whole lot in it that I was like, oh, you know, blown away by. With that said, I think I would give The Return of Godzilla 7.5, 8 out of 10. Uh, it didn't reinvent the kaiju wheel at all, but it definitely brought us back to what I loved about Gojira to begin with. And it eventually brought us to the exceptional Godzilla versus Biollante. Um, so yeah, that's the return of Godzilla, guys. I want to thank you all for hanging out, listening. I would definitely ask you to please leave a five-star review, write a review if possible, and if it helps, um, like, follow, subscribe. Social medias, Twitter, at MMMonsterCast. Instagram, at ManMadeMonsterCast. We're back on Facebook, at ManMadeMonsterCast. You can follow me on social media on Twitter, at R0B underscore 138. On Instagram, at R0B138. Again, this is awesome. Uh, the more I do this, the more comfortable I will be. I'm still very much learning about this incredible genre of tokusatsu. And... Guys, tell me. Tell me what you want me to do. Super thankful that the community is just so cool and so welcoming. Uh, again, man-made kaiju cast. We're, uh, we're the little guy compared to the man-made monster cast, which you can catch every other Monday on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon. With that, I am Rob138, and I will catch you on the flip side. Bye.